keep your voice at a that's you know deep, that deep. medium <laughs> level. If we just yeah. pipe what down. What if I get excited? That's not going to happen. It's Friday, January the 27th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News Contributing Editor and International Haggis Bandit, and with me today are Paul Peters, Master's Student in Civil Engineering and Cremated Croquette, and Shanae Bostas, Dutch News Contributor and Notorious Bike Parker. Did, did you smuggle haggis again from Scotland, Gordon? I didn't. But there was a haggis in my house this week, and I cannot <laughs> comment on how it got there. But uh, uh, yeah, but, but it was there, and uh, in honour of uh, Robert Burns, um, I cooked it uh, with some uh, mashed-up uh, vegetables. So it's kind of sort of a Dutch, uh, Scottish mash-up, and it was very delicious. Um, and I can't really speculate on how it got there, but and in any case, I've eaten the evidence now. So you know, uh, it's all it, 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 it's a done deal. But, but if really it was nice. vegetarian, it would have been all right anyway, wouldn't it? It would have been all right, but uh, it may not have been vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> it was flexitarian. But yes, it was flexi, exactly. It was a flexi haggis. Yeah, yeah a partly vegetarian, partly What's not. What's in but a haggis anyway? Uh, it, is, um, it actually said that on the packaging. Uh, it's uh, sh- um, lamb's lungs, beef heart oh. and beef lungs and, um, and, and some oatmeal. And it wasn't thrown away by uh, custom officials in Aymaude because uh, he was too disgusted by it, I assume? No, it seemed to have got through. Well, it, it didn't come didn't come via <laughs> Aymaude. Actually, what happened, it was uh, I had it smuggled in in a, in a large shipment of cocaine through Rotterdam because that meant you know things... Yeah, yeah, that's the safest way to get something into the yeah. Netherlands. Yeah. Antwerp's a bit easier nowadays, though, isn't it? Antwerp, so, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is switching toward, yeah, towards Antwerp. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah. um, you've got a um, food-related job title as well, although yeah, yeah, l- l- well, less tasty. <laughs> less tasty indeed. Yeah, last week we had a little bit of uh, a, a problem finding upheavals. Um, but this week uh, uh, it was completely different. There was plenty of upheaval. There was the news about um, 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 uh, the Holocaust uh, deniers yeah. in the Netherlands. That twenty-five percent of youngsters uh, are downplaying the Holocaust. Uh, there was uh, uh, the Extinction Rebellion protesters who were uh, arrested. Where they, they arrested journalists as well. <laughs> Good call. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. and they so were arrested. Protesters who hadn't actually protested, wasn't it? They were arrested for thinking about protesting. Exactly, yeah. that led to a lot of upheaval. Uh, the NSA newspaper is is uh, is uh, has cancelled the weather. They will no longer put the weather forecast in the newspaper. There was also upheaval about that. But uh, this uh, and there's more upheaval. But my job title refers to the news about uh, the uh, wife of um, of the late Dutch singer André Hazes, Rochelle Hazes. She has been. Uh, yeah, for many years now, the topic of uh, of, of of gossips uh, and of, uh, of of the tabloids, um, and one of the juice channels that's sort of the, the the modern version of of the tabloids, right? These YouTube channels that mm. basically spit all the all, all the gossip they hear um, on YouTube. Uh, one of them called her a cremated coquette, <laughs> <laughs> um, and Rachel Hasses went over co- went to court over that. Yeah. She uh, uh, wasn't pleased with that nickname, and uh, the court ruled that indeed. Um, uh, yeah, it's forbidden to call her a cremated coquette. Yes. Whereas uh, uh, where my perfectly cooked one is okay. 
<laughs> well, they, they didn't specify, but uh, <laughs> I assumed that that one would be okay. Yeah. But yeah, it's a little bit of a Barbra Streisand effect, right? Because um, um, now everyone here in the Netherlands, because there's been so many articles uh, about this whole court case, yeah. um, uh, just way too many. It's also there was also a spillover. F- you know, it's it's OPEF usually it's on social media, but now there was also a spillover effect to NRC, to NOS, mm. to uh, also the, the the more serious media. But now everyone will. Um, immediately associate Rochelle Hasses with a cremated croquette, I think, yeah, because of this court case. No, and, surely uh, not. The court has ruled that that's <laughs> impossible. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if she would have just um, let it be, then uh, nobody would have blinked an eye at yeah, things. Yeah. But, uh, Although yeah, the, the NSA, I was reading a piece this morning by NSA, they've actually put their sort of legal analyst on, on the case, and he said that uh, <laughs> well, one of the reasons that uh, the Deuce Chandler lost, um, the, uh, yeah, lost the case was that uh, she uh, her defence was that she was a journalist and she had the the right to you know freedom of expression the court decided yep. she wasn't a proper journalist so therefore she, she couldn't rely on lean on that defense but this okay. is her second yeah. time in court isn't it wasn't she in court last year as well she uh, uh Yvonne the you know she's been in court all the time yeah. she uh, she gets sued all the time um, um uh, but this one definitely draw the most uh, media attention i think which is yeah. funny really because in theory libel is a criminal offense not a civil one in the netherlands so it's quite funny to see this kind of case in court I don't think it was libel. <laughs> Effectively, <laughs> it is. those defamation. Mm, yeah. Well, uh, what did uh, what did the NSA's legal uh, uh, journalist uh, say about this? Is it libel, or how did he qualify? Uh, it? Well, I mean, it was. It, it, it wouldn't wouldn't have been libel action because that wouldn't have. You can't bring a um, a private criminal ca- case in the Netherlands, so it must have been a civil action because Rachel yeah. has brought it uh, herself. Breach of so, privacy, yeah, okay. perhaps. Yeah. She yeah. has every right to like her croquette however she wants it exactly just a well done croquette yeah and, yeah, and, uh, and, yeah, and Shen uh, what's uh, the, we're going to talk a lot about bike parking I suspect later but uh, what, what's uh, uh, yeah what's the situation with your own uh, two wheeled uh, steed yeah I mean I have a slightly unhandy irregularly sized bike so I sometimes get into trouble because it doesn't always fit bike, in the normal it it's no no it, it's, it's it's the buck feet uh, yeah it's a buck feet from the days of the ah. children I still have it my other bike got stolen of course it's Amsterdam yes yeah, so I sometimes have problems parking I did go down to one of these new bike parks once and then got to the bottom was told oh you can't park that here and then I sort of looked at the way up I thought oh my god and then the guy kind of went well okay well we'll put it around the corner so no one sees and I had to be terribly grateful while he gave me a lecture about it um but um yeah i was running a bit late for the uh for the press opening of the new bike garage so i unfortunately parked my bike a little wildly and was uh, <laughs> desperately worried that it would wouldn't be there when i finished the press launch which would have been somewhat ironic given it was for a bike park with seven thousand spaces just mm. not one for mine uh, because if your bike gets uh, towed away, I guess in Amsterdam, uh, they will they will they will send it to Imuider practically, right? If you have to retrieve it, yeah, you, you have to make a, a journey to basically the end of the world to get your bike back. I, think. I don't know where it is, but there's now an online register because I did try to find my bike that disappeared from the streets. I didn't know if it was stolen or uh, or confiscated, but there were so many bikes on this thing, and there's no way to search it, and I just gave up. Mm. Mm. So maybe I'll have a service for it in memoriam. <laughs> My old bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can cremate it, maybe. In, 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 in the, no, no, lightly <laughs> cooked. And then wrap some meat in it, and you can have a, a cremated uh, bike, cremated croquette. Uh, 
So um, the end, the, this week's hot pepper of the week, uh, Paul, it doesn't come from the end of the world, but uh, it's not far off. Uh, what's uh, it's- What's been happening? It's not far off now. This week, uh, the OPEF comes from Belgium uh, because Prime Minister Mark Rutte traveled to Brussels on Wednesday for a meeting with Alexander de Croo, who is the Prime Minister of Belgium. Uh, I have to admit, uh, I forgot that uh, who was the Prime Minister of Belgium. This is I the mean, thing, Dutch people it, never know who the Prime Minister of Belgium is. No, it's, it's no. amazing. It, yeah. It's usually because they, they, they switch Prime Ministers so fast <laughs> that w- w- as soon as you have learned, uh, finally learned their name, uh, they, they have already switched to another one. Yeah, but, uh, they're lucky no, to have they, a government at all, really. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, maybe no, it's better it's, that it's, way. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, the the Dutch are not too interested in Belgian politics. Uh, uh, indeed, uh, it's it, the other way around. Uh, it is the case. I mean, every Belgian knows who who the Dutch prime minister is. Of course, That's it never course, changes. <laughs> no, of course, it never <laughs> changes. But they also know about the Tweede Kamer and the composition, the the, the parties in, in the Tweede Kamer. So they're much more much more better informed than uh, about the Netherlands than than the other way around. Uh, I have to admit. Um, but Rutte traveled to uh, to uh, to Brussels, and uh, yeah, these sort of minister, these sort of meetings between prime ministers are always followed by tweets filled with cliches and platitudes, right, about how great and trusted friends the two countries are, um, and uh, usually it is accompanied by a photo of the two leaders shaking hands in front of a couple of flags, and th- these flags were the ones that caused the ophef uh, this week because keen observers noticed that the Dutch flag was hanging upside down Um, (laughs) and while this would normally be already extremely awkward of course and embarrassing for the hosting nation the faux pas was made even worse because the upside down flag has in recent years become a symbol of angry farmers who have been protesting the government's proposals to tackle polluting nitrogen emissions as well as conspiracy theorists who deny the existence of covid uh, who we always call whoppies Mm. right that's uh, that's their nickname yeah. and the blamage was uh, picked up by both belgian and dutch media and the belgian prime minister responded in a video shared on twitter the crow could be seen in his office repeating similar platitudes about how great friends the netherlands and belgium are mm-hmm. adding that uh, this means that the dutch flag should of course be hung correctly um, the video then turned to a dutch flag standing next to the belgian one but those same keen observers noticed that the top color um, uh, of the dutch flag looked more like orange than red um, and while orange, white, blue was has in fact been the Dutch flag a couple of centuries ago, it is now used by people who support a reunification of the Netherlands and Belgium and restore the United Kingdom of the Netherlands that existed until 1831 uh, when Belgium became an independent nation. And perhaps even more uh, awkwardly, uh, it's also used by the NSB, uh, who, uh, what, which was the Dutch National Socialist Party um, from the 1930s. Um, so what do we think? Is the Belgian Prime Minister an angry farmer, a wappie, a supporter of Dutch-Belgium u- reunification, or a neo-Nazi? Or perhaps mm. all three rolled into or one. All four. All, all four. four. Do, all do four. you think uh, it's like our late queen, our late English queen and her brooches, which are always a subtle kind of signalling, that he's going to be <laughs> yeah, making well, sort of origami kind of messages with flags in the background? <laughs> yeah. I suspect that that is indeed uh, the case, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it was a trick of the light, really, wasn't it? I mean, I can't believe he actually had to, like a prince's flach in his cupboard. He just kind of hung it in front of a window and the, the sunlight yeah, shone was, through it and it looked orange. It was bad lighting. I think yeah. the video was shot in at night or something. Yeah. So um, they, they, it, it, it was just bad lighting. But it, it did indeed look more orange than it did red. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, it, uh, yeah. It, 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 it looked a bit awkward. Yeah. At least he hastened to correct his mistake, though. 
That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, he needed two takes. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, and, it's fascinating. And, you know, it's a conspiracy theorists, Once they've just got an idea into their head, it won't. They won't let it budge. So lots of people were saying, "Oh no, it's definitely an orange flag because the Belgian flag looks much a much darker red." But that's because the Belgian flag just hung further away from the window, right? So. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and also, um, um, it 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 finally reinforces our prejudices uh, that the Belgium that Belgium is a much uh, worse organized country yeah. than the Netherlands is, right? So it kind of boosted our um, uh, our self confidence as a nation a little bit, I think. Yeah. And just as a thought experiment, um, if um, the United Kingdom of the Netherlands was restored, so that's the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg. If that would become one country again, um, uh, how uh, 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 compared to which country uh, would our economy be? What do we think? In terms of size. In terms of size. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe of, uh, Australia. Australia, yeah, yeah. that's uh, that's correct. But um, 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 it would also be the size of uh, Russia. Oh wow! Uh, the economy what, of really? Russia, yeah. So, Gosh, yeah, that's yeah. extraordinary. Now Russia's just got a smaller put, economy uh, in Italy, hasn't it? It's quite. It's not. Yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, just put to, to put things into perspective. But in terms of uh, of tank number of tanks, uh, we still, <laughs> still have, have collectively yeah. a lot uh, a, a long way to go. We've yeah. got more. We've got more burnt, burnt croquettes than uh, tanks. <laughs> oh, a lot of their tanks these days are burnt croquettes. Actually, the Russian tanks. True. <laughs> and the, and and the, Ukra- the angry Ukrainian farmers uh, yes. know uh, know how to deal with that. Yeah. yeah. The Netherlands is prepared to consider supplying Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine, Prime Minister Mark Rutte told journalists in Brussels on Wednesday. Earlier this week, Germany gave other countries, such as Poland and Finland, uh, permission to donate a number of their German-made tanks to Ukraine that is preparing for a new Russian offensive. The Tweede Kamer is pleased with the German permission. Labour MP Kati Piri tweeted, Finally the green light from Germany for the delivery of Leopard tanks. And VVD MP Ruben Brekelmans said Germany is now making the right decision. Last week, Defence Minister Kaisa Longren announced that the Netherlands will send two Dutch Patriot missile launchers and an undisclosed number of missiles to Ukraine. Additionally, the Netherlands will also contribute to the training of Ukrainian soldiers to properly use the high-end air defence system. 65 Dutch Marines will train 600 Ukrainians in the UK until April. Uh, and uh, the uh, the UK is uh, is well known territory for uh, for the for the Dutch Marine Corps because their first battle uh, was uh, the raid on the Medway. Of course, that's um, a that's a yeah. nice historic fact yeah. here. Um, the cabinet is still considering how the Dutch tank support to Ukraine should look like. The Netherlands currently does not own Leopard 2 tanks, but is leasing 18 tanks from Germany. Rutte suggested to journalists that the Netherlands might buy the leased tanks and then send them to Ukraine. But how the Dutch support will look like is currently still worked out. Uh, but it will probably also involve uh, training as well, because the Netherlands has um, uh, yeah, a nice training facility in Apeldoorn. Uh, they have a uh, Leopard 2 si- uh, uh, simulator or a number of simulators uh, over there so uh, they they might be able to train Ukrainian soldiers uh, here in the Netherlands yeah and there was uh, there was also some news about MH17 this week 
Yes, that's right. The European Court of Human Rights ruled on Wednesday that three cases brought against Russia by Ukraine and the Netherlands were partially admissible, including a complaint over the downing of flight MH17. The Strasbourg-based court ruled it had jurisdiction to decide on three complaints stemming from the conflict in eastern Ukraine since 2014. The Dutch and the Ukrainians want the court to hold Moscow responsible for human rights abuses that happened in the Donbass region. Uh, the violations include uh, the shooting down of the passenger jet uh, as it passed over the area en route to Kuala Lumpur from Amsterdam. Last year, the Hague District Court convicted three men and acquitted one of supplying the weapon which brought down the Boeing 77, killing all 298 people on board, including 197 Dutch nationals. And uh, as a reminder, this means that the Netherlands is uh, yeah, the second largest victim of the war in Ukraine, uh, because uh, yeah, these, uh, all these Dutch people died um, as a result of that conflict, which started in 2014 and not a year ago, as uh, yeah. some people um, seem to uh, think. The Dutch government said it was pleased with the decision and vowed to continue fighting for the victims. Today's decision is a crucial next step in the case that the Netherlands has filed against Russia. Foreign Affairs Minister Wopke Hoekstra tweeted, Russia was expelled from the Council of Europe last year, that's the court's uh, oversight body, after its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And the expulsion also removed the country from the court, although cases filed before its departure will continue. So yeah, also a lot of um, developments regarding MH17 as a result of this conflict, I think. Um, um, it was sort of, um, I think, uh, on the international stage, it was uh, sort of uh, more or less forgotten. Uh, uh, of course, it was revised after this court case uh, in the, at the District Court of, of The Hague uh, uh, was, was uh, held its verdict. Uh, but now it has been um, on, the, uh, on the agenda again, I think, internationally speaking. And um, yeah, this, uh, this is uh, good news for uh, all the people who um, uh, had seen loved ones uh, died in this, uh, in this downing. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, uh, well, good development. I think in we this, can uh, expect some more news on it soon, actually, because yesterday the MIT put out a press release saying there's going to be a big press conference at the start of February, uh-huh. um, hinting that it's maybe going to be going after the people who were involved in the delivery of yeah. the missile that hmm. shot down um, the MH17. The three people who were convicted in The Hague were basically kind of foot soldiers, weren't they? They were the people who were actually on the ground um, just yeah. d- d- directing the weapon, and then obviously, which wasn't, which wasn't supposed to hit a passenger airliner, but it did, and uh, that was why they were culpable. Well, the, the, the message that uh, they said was that alongside the involvement of the um, DPR, the Donetsk People's Republic, the yeah. JIT has also investigated the crew of the Buck and the responsibility for delivering this Russian's weapons system that downed the MH17. So there's going to be some news on that. Okay, step in your uh, green and yellow limo. We're moving on to the next story. Yes, or, or, or the battle bus, possibly, which I have been on, by the way. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. You've been too involved with Richard Tomosa. I, 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 uh, yes, yes, I, I may be too close to, the, to this story. As long as you just don't call him a cremated croquette. Yeah, I'll I, I, I say as well um, that Richard Tomosa was not involved in smuggling any haggis into the Hague this week. <laughs> yes, I want to make that clear. Yeah. The corruption trial of Richard de Moss started in The Hague this week. It's the culmination of a four-year investigation into the city councillor and his political party, Groep de Moss. 
The inquiry has led to The Hague being labelled Naples on the North Sea, which is uh, the title of a documentary made by Pond about the case, uh, which is worth watching if uh, you haven't checked it out and you mm. understand Dutch. Um, and because of all the allegations of grafting and clientelism. De Moss and his colleague, Rashid Grenay, were briefly aldermen or executive council members in 2018 after Groep de Moss became the biggest party on the council. But the other coalition parties withdrew their support and the two men had to resign after police raided the party's offices and de Moss's home in October 2019. While de Moss has carved out an electoral niche as a champion of ordinary people, prosecutors say he ran a criminal organisation that arranged political favours for his financial backers who donated a total of €113,000 to the party. One of the accusations is that he awarded two late-night licences to Attila Akiol, the former owner of the opera venue in the city centre, after pressing the city's mayor, Paulina Kricker, to ease the licensing restrictions. De Moss is then said to have tipped off Eichol that he was about to award the licences on a first-come, first-served basis so that Eichol could get a head start with his application, and he ended up getting two <laughs> of the five licences. Eichol and his brother Erdinch are also accused of uh, are also accused of buying a place on Demos's list of candidates for Erdinch's partner Nino Devetiluani. Devetiluani won a seat on the council in 2018, and that actually triggered the investigation when a civil servant reported a rumor that she was selling entertainment licenses for fifteen thousand euros. Gordon, I want to compliment you with all the pronunciations <laughs> of all these names. It's like, it's like you, you, I think you should be a tennis commentator at the at the uh, US Open or Australian I mean, I sort Open. Of, uh, which, b- uh, b- bumble my way through most of them, but uh, yeah, it is, uh, yeah, it is quite, well, it's quite a cast uh, and, and it, lineup. It, yeah. It's it sounded impressive, uh, to be honest. <laughs> and I have to say that uh, I am the only person on this podcast right now that does not have shady links with Richard de Moss because uh, the, the b- both of you have have been very friendly with him I think right Gordon you, you, you have joined him on his battle bus campaign and Shen you also said he was a very nice guy and he offered you 10,000 euros or something right? so, <laughs> how dare you <laughs> I interviewed him for a, for a story <laughs> and he was a very nice guy yeah that's that's his problem I think he's too nice a guy <laughs> well I mean, yeah, this problem might run a little bit deeper than that but the court will decide but uh, yeah. yeah I spent a day uh, with him on the campaign trail in his bottle bus and he has, he has made the point of making himself very uh, approachable to the media which is interesting because he's a protege of Geert Wilders who of course is very yeah. Yeah, very restrictive in his access to the media but Richard de Moss will if you want to speak to him he'll talk to you all day and he kind of because you know his part of his defence is that he everything Thing he's done is wholly transparent, and you know he's uh, uh, he, he he plays with an open hand. But I think uh, often he, he he kind of uh, he's very good at winning people's trust. Whether you're a local yeah. shopkeeper who's complaining about street lighting, or whether you're allegedly a property developer who uh, who, who wants to influence the uh, the city's licensing um, uh, or the, the the city's planning uh, uh, program. But how has he uh, responded officially to the charges? Uh, very vehemently. Uh, he is known for his combative style, and he certainly came out all guns blazing uh, when the case began, and actually for some time beforehand, because of course this has been running on for uh, yeah um, uh, over uh, over three years. He turned up to the courthouse in Rotterdam in one of the two stretch limos he likes to use uh, when he's out campaigning. <laughs> uh, he also which has color, which, which colours are these limos? They're in yellow and green, which are the yeah. city colours, the Hague, and also which he is then co-opted for his party because it's called as well as called Hoop de Moss it's called a Hart for Den Haag or Hart for the Hague 
Um, and he also has an American-style battle bus, which is also painted yellow and green. And you, you, you often see these if you're in The Hague during election time. You'll see this kind of, um, yeah, the, 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 this sort of cavalcade of, uh, of, of, of uh, stretched limos and, uh, and, and a big kind of U.S. school bus uh, going around the it, streets. Yeah. It's, it's almost a, a Moroccan <laughs> wedding. Yeah, uh. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, he also published a book. Uh, called Mein Fahal, or My Story, in which he denied all wrongdoing and described the investigations of witch hunt by his political enemies and the media. When he says clientelism is a term used to try to dirty his grassroots style of politics here, he prefers to call it ombudspolitik, which basically means he kind of goes into communities. He's always got a, um, a little notebook and a pen handy. Uh, he jots down people's grievances about like broken paving slabs um, and promises to fix them. And then his website is a whole list of uh, little fixes that he's made. So he calls them, he puts himself forward as a, as a political fixer. The only problem is that uh, uh, in the eyes of the prosecution service, these fixes weren't just about loose paving slabs. They were also about um, you know um, arranging late night licenses for, um, yeah. uh, for, for, for big local businessmen. I think you've made uh, up a word there, Gordon. Clientelism. Clientelism. Is that your translation of fringes politique? It's a AKA totally... Corruption. I think you'll find if you look in the dictionary, it's a perfectly valid English term. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, because clientelism, yeah, that's a word you hear uh, in this uh, in, in this context a lot. I thought it was a Dutch word indeed, and I was like, oh, the, the, the English translation is almost the same, but apparently Gordon made up his own words here. Um and I'm just happy that uh, uh, that uh, Richard uh, de Moss didn't uh, call his book My Struggle uh, or something yes, like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he, he, did, he did refrain yeah. from doing that, although yeah, yeah, he yeah, also hasn't yeah. been uh, um, waving. Yeah, he has yellow and green flags and football scarves as well. All the, all the people who... Uh, there's a little crowd of people outside the courthouse in Rotterdam, and they're all waving. They're all wearing uh, identical sort of green hoodies that Richard de Moss and his party uh, wear uh, when they're out on the streets, and also yellow and green scarves with the uh, I support to moss uh, woven into them so which, good way up so is, well. which way up is the right way up though Ooh, now you're asking. Don't know. Now you're asking. Yeah, um, and and Richard Thomas isn't even from the Hague, right? He's uh, he's from uh, from Delft. Yes, and he he's lived Delft, in, yeah. in 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 the Westland, so he had actually has nothing to do with the Hague. Um, so, but this this court case has been described as the one of the biggest uh, corruption cases in the Netherlands, right? Uh, uh, what what does this mean for local politics in the Netherlands? Yeah, well, it has kind of uh, shone a light on some uh, some of the sort of flaws in the Dutch uh, town hall politics setup. I mean, Hoop de Moss is a local party and only fields candidates in the Hague. Uh, Richard de Moss was originally a councillor and an MP for Geert Wilders' party, the PVV, but uh, in 2012 they kind of fell out. Wilders deselected him um, in the election that Wilders, of course, um, uh, triggered by uh, walking out on the the uh, first cabinet. Uh, mm. So Richard, Richard de Moss went off and formed his own gang and then basically built his support by undermining Wilders' voter base in The Hague. And in 2018, Hoop de Moss became the biggest party on the city council with eight seats. And now nearly 30% of votes in the council elections these days go to local parties, but they're almost entirely unregulated. And this has kind of been a running sore over going back decades. Um, so effectively, the, on the one hand, the parties complain they don't get any central funding, and that's an unequal struggle with the parties who have seats in parliament because they do get central funding. But on the other hand... Another struggle. Uh, a struggle, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not only here struggle. No, yeah. Uh, but if, yeah, the flip side of that is they don't have to provide any records of party donations. 
So yeah. it's all quite opaque. And while lots of local parties are quite upstanding small operations that are run by volunteers or the candidates put up the financing themselves, in a city like The Hague, which obviously has a population of half a million and quite a big local economy, it's a very tempting place for politicians and businessmen who want to game the system. And it's also, of course, made governing The Hague very complicated because Hoop de Moss is the biggest party on the council, but yeah. it was excluded from the coalition talks because of this inquiry. And that meant that uh, it took six months to form a five-party administration um, yeah. after the last local elections. Yeah. So h- how, long is, so, how long is this trial going to go on? I mean, Dutch trials are not known for being super speedy could could this be going on until the next set of local elections oh gosh quite possibly yeah i mean the actual hearings are going to last for three weeks but then it's anybody's guess when they'll actually come back with the sentence uh, or, or a judgment rather I have to say um altogether eight people are on trial uh, three politicians and five businessmen and the charges are membership of a criminal organization attempted to bribe an official breaching official secrecy bribing voters and perjury and de moss is also accused of hiring an illegal handyman to work on his home that's kind of been <laughs> That's been rolled up into the case as well. Um, okay. He claimed he claimed he didn't know the guy was an illegal immigrant. Um, the prosecution ah. service take a different view. Oh, okay. Yeah. The, 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 the guy was illegally in the Netherlands. It wasn't that no, he no, was no, having no, an illegal he handyman. He, he was sort of a, yeah, uh, just sort of broken into DeVos's house and started fixing the bathroom. No. <laughs> <laughs> Although, frankly, the state of uh, protectionism for houses, uh, it probably is illegal to fix your toilet nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the maximum sentence for the most serious offences is six years in prison or a fine of yeah. 90,000 euros. So they're, they're pretty serious offences. Um, and it's worth saying that the uh, prosecution service has won every political corruption case that has gone to court since 1990. And that's about 14, oh, wow. 14 trials. Uh-huh. Local, national, what sort of trials have they been, Gordon? I think they're mostly in local politics, to be honest. Yeah. Of, uh, yeah. Mostly in Limburg, actually. <laughs> yes. Yeah, a lot of involving <laughs> Jos van Rij, but we won't get into yeah, him now. Yeah. Yeah, who uh, who after his conviction was re-elected again in the uh, uh, provincial c- uh, council of uh, of Limburg. So um, yeah. um, um, it doesn't mean uh, necessarily that this is the end of uh, Richard de Moss's uh, political life if he is convicted. But to be honest, this investigation took so long. It's you know right, it's a four-year-long investigation, yeah. which I think is a little bit problematic. Okay, corruption is is hard to hard to prove, uh, and, and 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 the investigation needs to be thorough, of course. But four years, I mean. If he is guilty of that, then we had a corrupt politician um, uh, in office for four years. And if he is innocent, then people are assuming that he is corrupt for four years. So it's uh, it's uh, it has taken a, a little bit too long, I think. But um, yeah, and of um, course, uh, yeah. uh, COVID, um, uh, you know, interfered with oh, things as well. Yeah. So to, to, yeah. during the pandemic, it was harder for them to you know, carry out on the ground investigations. So that's just slowed yeah. things down. And also noteworthy is that this was the first time that an actual uh, gemeentehuis, a city hall, was raided by uh, the the police, right? Yeah. In uh, um, uh, 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 investigating this uh, these allegations, uh, so it was a very strange sight to see um, all these uh, uh, detectives entering and exiting the uh, an actual gemeentehuis. Yeah. I wonder what else they found. I bet they found some strange stuff in people's drawers. <laughs> The mind boggles. A, a cremated croquette uh, <laughs> left uh, by someone, or uh, or your bike uh, <laughs> that yeah. you accidentally parked in City or Hall. Or just a, of, pi- a uh, pile of uh, unpaid fines from Shen for parking a bike in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, uh, m- moving on from uh, from the Gemeente House to uh, actual houses. Um, 
It's uh, bad Ooh, news. Nice bad news for estate agents this week, but uh, it might be good news for people who want to buy a house, especially first-time buyers. To uh, celebrate Christmas, the bottom fell out of the Dutch housing market. According to the Land Registry, house prices fell by 2.3% between November and December, which is the biggest monthly drop in a decade after months, years of house price rises. For the first time in nine years, quarterly house prices also fell, which meant a drop of 2.4% between the autumn and winter last year. We heard from the Association of Estate Agents, NVM, earlier this month that their agents were seeing signs of sales contracts, that's the step before you buy, dropping by more than 6% in just a quarter. And the Land Registry report confirms that the market's changed, so we no longer have to think about endless synonyms for overheated or increase or rise we can start trying to think of the opposite. We're, but, we're going um, to get uh, the, we're, we're, we're see a return of that uh, phrase, underwater mortgages, aren't we? So, yeah. <laughs> yes. Is uh, it on the ground or on the water? Negative, uh, negative equity, we call yeah. it, Paul. It doesn't sound nearly as exciting as underwater, no. I have to say. But um, another thing is, is underwater. There are issues in house building at the moment. The basic problem in the Netherlands is that there's a shortage of houses. Um, and the government wants to build far more houses. Now, the NVM has also said that housing developers are unable to shift the houses that they want to sell. They don't normally break ground on a new development until 70% of the stock is sold. But this is proving a problem at the moment because new build is more expensive per square metre than existing housing, partly because of the costs of new build regulations like insulation, but also because of the cost of local land, for instance, and the cost of the whole planning permission uh, process, which the FD says takes up about two thirds of the cost base of new houses. The uh, housing minister, Hugo de Jonge, wants to build 900,000 houses by 2030 to solve the Dutch housing shortage. Well, he wants developers to build 900,000 houses. Well, I really hope he's not building them himself. That would be... But, well, uh, if you... If you <laughs> If you go after the, all the photos that he is taking of him uh, standing at the construction site where they are going to break uh, ground, yeah. uh, it, it, it almost, uh, it's almost suggesting that he is actually building all these houses himself. I mean, himself. He, he looks good in a hard hat. Don't take it away That's from right. him. Yeah. Yeah, in a I wonder if he has special construction shoes. I think like he does. Yeah, oh, he shoes. Yeah. The, the, he gets them all the time because he's, of course, famous of wearing all these uh, flower-printed shoes and um, all these uh, construction sites that he visits. Uh, or the, the, these construction companies think it's nice uh, to, to give him... Um, uh, Some steel-tipped boots. They give him uh, flower-printed boots or flower-printed construction helmets all the time. So he has a whole yeah. collection of that, but uh, I haven't seen him actually wearing it. I've, so uh, that's, uh, he doesn't really use them. Yeah, I, I hope he declares them in the register of uh, politicians' gifts. <laughs> otherwise, he's going to get in trouble. Yeah. They could be worth at least a fiver each. Yeah. Anyway, he, he wants to uh, he wants to tackle the, the speed of house building and huge amounts of regulation in the Netherlands to try to actually get these houses on the road, so to speak. Um, but this week, the Construction Trades Economic Institute, the EIB, said that no more than 70,000 homes will be built this year and next year, which is 30,000 a year short of the government target. And it blames the cost of building materials and higher interest rates, as well as these legal requirements about building and things like nitrogen based pollution. Hmm. And how about the interest rates? Are they uh, about normal right now or not? Well, that's what's interesting. Estate agents and builders are talking about high interest rates at the moment as if they're something unusual. But actually, 
For a few years, we had interest rates for mortgages and for for lending, which were around 1%, which is an incredibly unusual situation because normally they're around 4%, say, and they're back to this level, back to normal. But the problem Mm. is that that in that period of low interest rates, when people wanted to move house after their enjoyable pandemic experience being locked in a house with their <laughs> yeah. neighbours. Exactly. They spent too much time in their houses, so they wanted a new one, basically. <laughs> so house prices were pumped like crazy. You had access to almost free money. People were sick of where they lived. Maybe they wanted another office. Maybe they wanted to move to the country. They thought they could work from home a bit more. So the house price market was completely pumped. And if you look at analysis from outside the Netherlands, the country is seen as one of the most exposed developed countries to a housing slump because people also borrow an awful lot compared to other countries, partly because they've got this lovely tax perk called the Hypothek Rente Aftrek, which is the most generous in Europe. It's, um, it's a bit of a house of cards, actually, based on debt. But, uh, but the biggest problem, of course, the government hasn't been building enough houses for years. The population's increasing. And all of this regulation for back protection, nitrogen, compound limits has just piled up to make it an incredibly complex process. Yeah, and of course you've got other perks uh, like uh, the, the Ubelton, which they've only just abolished, where parents could give their children €100,000, but tax-free, but only on condition they spent it on a house. So, and- you know, it was an incredibly... But by Dutch standards, a very generous tax break. But it was it meant you could only you could only give your children that amount of money if they were buying a house. So that sort of incentivized people, I think, you know, to to move house even more. Well, of course, parents can still give their children that amount of money, but they just have to pay extra tax. Have to pay on tax it. on it. Yeah, yeah. But it's a. Um, but yeah. So so, uh, what does this mean generally for people in the Netherlands who want to move house? Well, interestingly, even if you're not planning to buy or sell a house at the moment, Dutch economists say there's some evidence that people spend more in general if they think their house is worth more and they're a homeowner. So economists are desperately worried about an oncoming recession or mild recession, and nobody wants to talk the country down or the housing market down. But that aside, the, the major banks like ABN AMRO and the DNB, National Bank, are now saying that house prices are going to drop by 6%, 10% in the next two years. But if you look at the housing bubble that we've had since 2015, house prices almost doubled on on the level they were at 2015 at the peak of last year. It was madness. Hmm. So it's, it must be good for first-time buyers that the house prices come down a bit. And most people who own a house already have got a big margin uh, above their mortgage, so a big proportion of the house that they own themselves. So if the notional price comes down a bit, it's it's unlikely to put most people in negative equity or under water, as, uh, as you were saying. <laughs> so if people are selling to buy again, well, the house they're going to buy is going to be worth a bit less. So yeah. that's not yeah. necessarily a problem. But no. the main problem is for, for investment companies like Blackstone, who've uh, been buying up stacks of houses, and they've got a housing book that's worth a lot less, and they're finding that pension funds are taking their money out. But uh, all in all, you, you could say it's good news, really. You kind of could, yeah. I guess the people are going to lose out are, firstly, if you're downsizing, obviously. So, I mean, usually, like you say, if you buy houses through your life, um, you tend to move into bigger ones. So, yeah, the, the, the margin get smaller so yeah, maybe you can afford uh, a better house but of course when you get to you know the, the older people whose kids have flown the nest if they want to move down then they're going to find that they lose out but also people who've just bought 
if you then need to move house again, then you might well find you do end up in negative equity because, you know, like you say, the, we had prices go up by 21%, I think, uh, to last January. Um, so anyone who bought something the, during the pandemic or in the year before the pandemic might find them that, that if they need to remortgage and they move into a new house, that, that, that gives them a few problems. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the experts think this is a relatively small group, but yeah. That, the, yeah, the, yeah, some people have gained from the huge rises. But uh, yeah, the, the advice is if you bought recently, don't sell. Yeah. If you can help it. If you can help it, yeah. But usually people move house because they don't have any choice because, you know, you, you have another child, so you need a bigger house or you get a job in a new yeah. town. So it's, uh, yeah, so, so some people are going to miss out. And of course, you know, in 2008 or after 2008, house prices dropped by 20% over five years. So, yeah, which caused mm. all sorts of problems. So yeah. we hope we don't get a repeat of that. But I, I think there was a different situation at the time because people were encouraged to borrow yeah. to the max of what they could borrow. And you were seen yeah. as, as a bit of an idiot if you didn't maximize your potential equity from yeah. your house to take the cash. Whereas now, actually, the rules have changed about how much you can even borrow on your house. And yeah. there's a bit of a slightly different climate about Wading really excessive borrowing. That so. is true. And people also, of course, took out interest-only mortgages a lot. So they weren't actually paying off the capital on their house. And that was a problem. The amount of capital, the amount of money you owed to the bank didn't go down. And then when your yep. house lost value, you were screwed. So apart from Hugo de Jonge, are there other peoples we can blame? Well, funny you should say that, Paul, because it's always <laughs> nice to, to have a victim. But um, old people old people um, ah, yes quite a lot of people are pointing their fingers at these uh, these old people who are still in their big family houses after their kids have moved out the family houses which have increased in value I, I'm grabbing my times. pitchfork right now and, and a torch <laughs> and your upside down flag and my upside down flag yeah please um, uh, please move on who else can I blame well the NVM actually did some research into this um, and they said one of the structural issues if you like, no pun intended, is that there's a lack of suitable housing for these older people, you know, nice apartment complexes with lifts on a single floor, for instance. Um, and the, the government agrees it also has a policy aim of displacing these old people from the homes they've lived in for years, because then this frees up space for a new family, and then that family's house frees up space perhaps for a first-time buyer. So it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's communism in action, hmm. but um, <laughs> a bit, bit, bit of a shame for communities where uh, people have lived for 25 years and then feel like they uh, are being gently nudged to move on. Yeah, yeah. but that's part of the uh, yeah, austerity, uh, the bezuinigings uh, uh, operation uh, from uh, 2012 on, I guess, is that uh, elderly people are encouraged to stay uh, at home as long as possible, yeah. right? So uh, uh, elderly homes have been closed down, uh, uh, have been scaled down. Um, and yeah, that, uh, as you say, that's, that's just a problem for the natural circulation of homes. And it means that a lot of young people uh, cannot find uh, a, a new house because they are simply not freeing up. Um, You're so, blaming yeah, the old uh, people too, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Hugo de Jonge, old people. I'm just going. Um, Hugo de Jonge, um, um, no pun intended. Asylum seekers. I'm going to blame everyone. <laughs> House blockers. Yes. <laughs> what would that be in Dutch? Huizenblokkeerders. Ja. Blokkeeropa's. Ja, dat is Blokkeerbejaarden. Blokkeer bij jaren, ja, even better. Sorry. When they're going to protest, they're going to have their... Uh, <laughs> scootmobiles, uh, they're going yeah. to put that on the A4 and stuff like that. And they yeah, have I a think, big uh, collection of flags. 
Yeah, yes. they, they do. And uh, I think the police are going to have to uh, 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 arrest some uh, some elderly people uh, just to be sure that they uh, will not block any motor motorways. Yeah. Or houses. Yeah, just arrest or anyone who owns a scooter mobile. According to Apple's charts, this is the 152nd best podcast in the Netherlands. and we couldn't In the news category. In the news category, <laughs> yes. And we couldn't yeah. have made it to those giddy heights without the support of you, our lovely patrons. I want to I want to emphasize that we are more popular than the uh, podcast of the World Economic Forum in the Netherlands. Yeah. I saw. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So uh, well done. The FD is the best, though, isn't it? It has really good music jingles. I will check that uh, uh, while Gordon is finishing this uh, this segment. Okay. If you're not a lovely patron or any other kind of patron, you can fix that very easily by sponsoring us on Patreon. And we really do rely on your donations to keep grinding the windmill of Dutch news, politics, and those overblown flashpoints that feature in our op-ed for the week slot. And to show our gratitude, we give all new patrons a shout-out on the podcast and the chance to ask us a question. This week, we say hello and welcome to one new patron, Christine Roma. So, thank you very much, Christine. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Did you pronounce it right, Gordon? I hope so. Uh, Roma, I, 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 yeah, sure. I, pronou- I pronounced the umlaut, so... I think you did a marvellous job. Again, good job on pronoun- pronouncing unpronounceable names, yeah. But you don't get a discount for mispronunciation. I don't know. No, of no. course not, no. Or a cashback deal. If you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, log on to www.patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash dutchnewsnl. Do you know what is the uh, top podcast in the news category right now? Uh, probably O.O. Uh, de Moss. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a podcast of the Algemeen Dagblad on yeah. the whole uh, uh, Richard de Moss saga. So uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of a messy podcast, I thought. But uh, if, you, if you understand Dutch, then it's uh, worth listening to because then you know all the ins and outs of, uh, of Richard de Moss and his um, uh, yeah, a corruption case. So, uh, corruption trial. He's on trial for corruption, yeah. This is a fascinating story, I think. A, a Dutch archaeological project has led to 1,200 more possible Bronze Age burial mounds in the Utrecht and Veluwe regions. The discoveries were made with the help of thousands of volunteers who combed through radar images and high-resolution photographs. Additionally, almost 38 square kilometers of prehistoric agriculture fields from 1100 to 200 BC and 900 potential charcoal production sites have been located in the project that's run by the University of Leiden. Do we think these prehistoric farmers had uh, tractors as well, which, which they used to blockade uh, motorways? Tanks. They had tanks. Yeah. Tanks, yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Did they find any remains um, of croquettes that they'd, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they'd been overcooked? <laughs> The volunteers uh, are called burgerwetenschappers by the University of Leiden, or citizen scientists, and that's not to be confused with uh, the amateur scientists who hang their flags <laughs> upside down. Or Belgian prime ministers. Or Belgian prime ministers, indeed. Leiden archaeologist Eva Kaptein, great name by the way, told Dutch News that they have found so much more than they expected, thanks to the help of so many people. The project started in 2020 and the findings are shedding a new light on the history of the drier parts of the Netherlands. No underwater farms in that uh, in, in the Veluwe, it was all very dry, yeah. up and dry. 
The findings suggest that the areas, which are now nature reserves, were much more heavily populated in the Bronze Age than initially thought. In total, 6,500 volunteers came forward to help, scanning photographs at home, uh, which was probably a nice side job in the pandemic, right? When we were all in lockdown, you yeah. could just uh, either uh, look at these uh, um, archaeological photographs or play the, uh, what was it, the Paling uh, Sluice game or something, which we saw also in the pandemic. The uh, Eel Sluice game, was that a thing? Yeah, it was. Uh, they have eel sluices uh, put up somewhere in the Netherlands, oh, but yeah. uh, it needs to be activated. Yeah. So people were watching live streams, and when an eel was passing by, they pressed yeah. the button and uh, to let the eels through. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, there was also popular. Oh, not uh, to chop in, uh, off their heads to let no. them through. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you closed it too quickly, you <laughs> might you might do that. But I'm I'm not sure. Do they grow back on eels? I'm not sure, but uh, be careful with the sluices, indeed. So six and a half thousand volunteers uh, helped locate all these potential sites, and then field work was carried out at uh, 300 uh, sites. And what they did was, when uh, seven or more people had identified a certain site, they uh, selected 300 of these sites and investigated them uh, further and uh, 80 of them turned out to be actual bronze age burial grounds mm. and if you interpolate this success rate to all the thousands of potential sites then you would expect to have 1200 of these burial grounds in the Veluwe and the uh, Utrechtse Heuvelrug area so yeah. yeah very exciting and also uh, yeah remarkable to see that we always assumed that the Netherlands was uh, in the Bronze Age a swamp mm. where only a handful of people were living uh, but apparently it was uh, there were much more activities over there as uh, yeah as well as agriculture we never thought that that was the case there were hunters and gatherers but never really um, uh, an agricultural presence. So, uh, yeah, it's um, shedding a new light indeed. And uh, the project has won a European Heritage Award, uh, which is called uh, Europa Nostra 2022, uh, earlier this week. So um, uh, there's also some European praise uh, on this project. I wonder what they were looking for, like lumps when they looked at the scans? Yeah, exactly. Person-sized lumps. <laughs> now they're a bit larger because they're burial mounds of course but uh, yeah if you uh, I think on Dutch news there is a, a photo of one of these scans and they it, it, it basically looks like uh, a, a small hill in the landscape uh, mm. uh, buried down so um, yeah as you say it, it really looks like a, a mound I guess it's a good thing when you're uh, surveying the Dutch uh, landscape that anything that looks like even remotely like a hill, any kind of undulation, um, it's quite easy to pick out, isn't it? So, Good exactly. point. Yeah. Who knew there were unexpected benefits? Yeah. yeah. And I wonder how many uh, hunebedden are uh, secretly buried in the Drenthe landscape. Yes. Maybe, got, maybe they had uh, underwater hunebedden. And how many prehistoric drug labs are there in Brabant? Quite a few. <laughs> yeah. Must have to do, yeah. I mean, they must have been quite starved for entertainment. Early adopters, the Dutch. Yeah. We start our roundup of the week's sports news in uh, Bhubaneswar in India, where the Dutch men have made it through to the semi-finals of the Hockey World Cup. Another great pronunciation, Gordon. Well, I, I actually checked that one just a second ago. <laughs> oh, I thought you were talking about Hockey World Cup. I find that quite difficult to say. That is, yeah. <laughs> uh, they beat South Korea 5-1 in their quarterfinal. That's the first time they conceded a goal in the tournament so far. And now they play Belgium on Friday, where hopefully the flags mm. will be hung the right way up at the ceremony. <laughs> well, the, the, the Belgium flags can be upside down, of yes, course. Yes, yes. Yeah, we'd, never, we'd never notice the difference. Yeah. That's why this whole idea of, of putting a flag upside down as a sort of international sign of distress is, uh, doesn't make any sense because there are plenty of countries that either turn into different countries or keep having the same flag. Yeah, the Netherlands turns into Schleswig-Holstein. 
Is, yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. Or the former kingdom of Yugoslavia, yeah. but that's all a different story. <laughs> yeah. And I, and you can hang the British uh, Union flag upside down, I believe, but it's something to do with the thickness of the white lines. Yeah, the, the, it's not exactly symmetrical. So there's uh, no. the white band is a different width on uh, on either side. So often it does get hung upside down. Then some very no eagle-eyed, <laughs> tedious retired general notices and kicks up a fuss about it. The edge of the uh, red cross on the top left corner should be vertical and if you put it upside down then it's horizontal that's that's how i always no, check right. it. are you a retired general <laughs> <laughs> who knew no it is because gordon once said that uh, it, it happens very often that uh, the union jack is hung upside down um, uh, accidentally i always thought that it was a symmetrical flag but then i checked it and i said oh no it's a, there's a small difference but uh, that's how i memorized it this is my angels yeah yeah <laughs> So anyway, uh, the Netherlands played Belgium in the uh, in the final of the last um, uh, Hockey World Cup, uh, and the Belgians won on a penalty shootout. And in the other semi-final, Australia will play Germany after Germany knocked out England on penalties. Some things never change. Mm. And um, uh, think things are going downhill fast in Dutch women's sport as well as in uh, your pronunciation skills. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Specifically, uh, Kimberly Boss. That's a, a nice, easy name to pronounce. Uh, she's trying to become the first Dutch competitor to win a medal at the Skeleton Bob World Championships uh, in San Moritz in Switzerland. Uh, Boss is the European champion and she won a bronze medal in the event at the Beijing Winter Olympics last year. She said the best thing about winning an Olympic medal was she didn't have to explain her sport anymore. So we all know what Skeleton Bob is, right? Uh. <laughs> is it upside down or um... it is kind of upside down yeah it's the one where you actually go down a bobsleigh track head first on a tiny sledge so it's the wappy version of bobsleigh <laughs> yeah basically wappy bobsleigh exactly um, she started well she recorded the second fastest time on her opening run on Thursday but in the second round they do four rounds altogether. in the second round she slipped to fourth place so just like in Beijing she'll have to stage a comeback in the second two runs on Friday and um I assume that there is uh, some news about our favorite, this podcast's uh, favorite uh, football tournament, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you're all excited already for the Nations League final stages. Yes, yeah. very much. Yeah. Uh, Did they make the, the, the whole uh, selection uh, system even more complicated than it wa- already was? Well, this right? is actually very simple because there's only four teams in this part of the tournament. So I literally just went to Switzerland to draw four teams out of a hat. It like must have taken like <laughs> oh, okay. half a minute. Um, this was the easy part. Yeah, yeah, this is the easy bit after the inordinately complicated uh, structure of the tournament. Um, and the finals are being played in Rotterdam and Enschede in July. Enschede? Enschede, yes. Well, the thing is, oh, really? because it's the Nations League, all the sort of big venues were already booked, like, uh, or they said they were washing their hair. They're actually playing in Feyenoord Stadium, which is, I suppose, was fairly prestigious, uh, but also, uh, yeah, Enschede. Uh, so Oranje have been drawn against Croatia. They'll play their semi-final uh, in Rotterdam. Both teams were knocked out of the World Cup recently by the eventual winners, Argentina. And the Dutch uh, reached the final of the First Nations League tournament in 2019, losing to Portugal in Porto. Their manager at the time is Ronald Koeman, and uh, he's returned as coach this week, just in time uh, to pick up the reins and uh, <laughs> yeah, mount another successful campaign in the illustrious Nations League. Kuman immediately pleased Dutch football journalists by saying he'd return to the 4-3-3 system, which is as Dutch as windmills, giant cheese wheels, and throwing your bicycle in the canal, if your name uh, is Shane. What, what, what is the 4-3-3 system, Gordon? It basically means you have me. four defenders, three midfielders, and three, three forwards. That's what it means. Okay. So it's, it's more attacking than uh, 4-4-2, which is what England always play. The, the Dutch like, Yeah. It's a formation they played in 1974, basically. And uh, the Dutch basically would stop the clock on 19, uh, 1974 if they could. 
for all kinds of reasons. Yes, the whole thing about this 4-3-3 system is that whenever a national coach uh, uh, chooses a different system, then there is an explosion of of, of angry people. Yeah. How can you how can you switch to a different uh, strategy? And uh, uh, as soon as he adopts it, then it is. Why are we not trying it something new? Yeah. Because yeah, um, yeah that's the, that's the never-ending cycle of, uh, of, of uh, football debates. Yeah, exactly. And how about the Eredivisie? Uh, Ajax has sat their manager, Alfred Schroeder, on Thursday night ah. uh, because they've been terrible lately. They've had a dreadful <laughs> run result. I think their worst result since the 60s. And they haven't won in seven games and the worst result was the, was on Thursday night when they drew one all at home to Fallen Dumb. Even though they had 85% ah. possession of the ball, so Fallen Dumb literally <laughs> touched the ball for about like sort of twice in the whole match. But one of them was good enough to put them 1-0 ahead um, oh, in wow. the uh, Johan Cruyff Arena. So Ajax went 1-0 down and had to salvage a point late on. And uh, the club CEO, Edwin van der Sar, basically decided enough was enough. And he sacked Schroeder straight after the game in the dressing room. Didn't waste any time. So journalists who were at the game actually had to suddenly sort of come out on the late night news and say Alfred Schroeder's now been sacked. Um, Fandasar said the decision was painful but necessary and so the search begins for another middle-aged bald white sports coach to follow on from Schroeder and Erik ten Hag Um, and there's quite a few to choose from so I'm sure they won't spend too much time finding one uh, another team managed by a middle-aged bald white man, uh, Feyenoord, uh, under Ari Slot. They're top of the table. Isaac Alkmaar in the second place. PSV slipped to third after losing in midweek to Emmen. And Groningen slumped to the bottom after losing at home to relegation rivals Gambur. The big match this weekend sees fifth-placed Twente play host to Feyenoord on Sunday. That's the two teams, obviously, that host in the Nations League as well, so really yeah. prestigious. Isaac will go top for at least 15 hours if they beat Utrecht on Saturday evening. Great. Have we had enough football? That's enough football. Yes. Excellent. Let's move on to bicycles. So um, we don't know whether we're calling it uh, an underwater or an underground garage or bike shed, but uh, Amsterdam Gemeente opened a massive, truly massive garage. Are you calling it a bike shed? It's It's even worse (laughs) than calling it underground. They called it a bike shed in their press release. So I thought, well, use the the words, use the words that they use. I mean, we normally think of bike sheds as associated with other activity than parking a bicycle but anyway (laughs) that's the word they wanted to use it is amsterdam so who knows who knows exactly anyway so they maybe they they just found a new new version of prostitution uh, in this uh, in this new garage (laughs) say no to windows say yes to uh say to bike sheds yeah bike sheds not not yet that's that's the next innovation anyway it it is actually a a massive and very beautiful actually that um, would be quite a, quite a good good place to to store all these british uh, tourists that are uh, always invading the red light district i think we should build them an island i think it should be erotic island <laughs> we just direct them there <laughs> yeah leave them there Anyway, the Gemeente has opened a massive bike shed, 7,000 bikes. They're going to open a second one in, in February with space for another 4,000. It was a very swish opening. The great and the good rolled their bikes down a rolliter for a photo moment. President of the NS, government minister, Vet Howder, that's the head of infrastructure for Amsterdam. We all had a glass of non-alcoholic champagne. And then we listened to this kind of beep, beep noise as this garage door was winched upwards and that was the official opening anyway everything was fabulous Ooh. 
85 million spent, four years in the making, no leaks, lots of artwork, space for 11,000 bikes. Actually, my, my biggest relief was that Daleks didn't come rolling out when they opened this garage door because I, I felt like I was in a Doctor Who uh, movie. But um, anyway, the idea is there's lots of bike spots. There's going to be smart signage telling you where you might find a space. You don't have to leave your bike stranded outside Central Station anymore. And um, the main park is built under the lake in front of Central Station. So it all looks very lovely. Yeah. Because always a problem when you park your bike is you can never remember where you've parked your bike. So presumably we're now going to see just hundreds of people permanently wandering about this bike facility, not a clue where their bike is. So there, yes. there, there are numbers. There are numbers on the racks. Yeah. You might have to remember yeah, okay. them. Take a smartphone shot, I would say. That's my I tip. Always, I, yeah. I always forget my number, yeah. Okay. And also uh, the signage will probably stop working within a week. And also uh, there will no places be available also within two weeks i think because that's always what happens with uh, parking places uh, parking garages uh, at, at train stations they always fill up immediately yeah. and then you think where are these bikes coming from right and uh, yeah, yeah they just fill up with the people just abandoned don't they? they fill up with vase feet so, so it becomes a yeah. bike orphanage yeah they claim that their smart system will tell them when a bike has been there for 28 days mm. and then they will take it away okay okay freeing up space like the old people yeah, so this sounds fabulous. Surely everyone in Amsterdam must be delighted with this uh, this development. No, absolutely not. Of course not. Rather like Paul. I actually think it's really amazing that they completed this massive infrastructure project without someone pulling the plug like they did with the tram line in Edinburgh. But the Dutch are amazing at these big things, which isn't surprising when you look at how they um, yeah. persevered to build their land. But um, well, the no, North South line, that was another one that uh, did, did overran a little bit, wasn't it? So It got there in the end. <laughs> Um, anyway, the, the parole, the, the local newspaper, ran a nasty big headline pointing out that there's no space in the new garage for cargo bikes, Buckfietze, or for scooters. And um, in itself, that's a bit of a turnaround because a few years ago, the Buckfietze and the Buckfietze mamas were the bane of the city and uh, the parole there wasn't very keen on them. Yeah. But uh, anyway, it's a bit of an oversight not to yeah. have parking for the for the larger vehicles. Yeah. Or the ones with the big fat, the, the fat bikes or the big tyres or the, or, or the fan moves. True, the fat yeah. tyres. Yeah, no one asked about the fat tyres, but I don't know how big a population they have. Yeah. It's the not a separate parking area for fun move bikes, so everyone else can sort of point and jeer at them because everyone hates fun move bike owners. <laughs> they should organise that, I think, yeah. <laughs> so what happens to the ugly but very photogenetic uh, multi-storey temporary bike park? That's true. So in the meantime, when the city was building this, they put this massive prefabricated steel metal bike park outside the station and the, the city was completely embarrassed about how ugly it looked spilling over with bikes everyone thinks it's an eyesore Is it, isn't it isn't this the boat? Exactly. The, the floating, the yeah. floating multi-story mm. bike park. <laughs> but that has been there for as long as I remember, I think. So, uh, right? The idea is that it goes away, that there was a, yeah. a plan yeah. to build yeah, yeah. a proper garage. And uh, anyway, it became one of the most photographed spots in the city and tourists thought it was marvellous. Anyway, so uh, in the theory, uh, it should go away now, mm. but no one exactly knows what's yeah. going to happen. Do, do you want it in The Hague, Gordon? We don't really have the the, 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 the water space for it, I don't think. Uh, will, will the, will well, the Americans it, let us sell it to China? I'm sure Richard de Moss, Richard de Moss would do a deal if you phoned him up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would fill up the entire Hofeifer, I think. Uh, yeah. so, so does that mean this will be the end of people just dumping their bikes in the street then? Yeah, I, I, I'd like to say that it was in the interests of journalism that I wild parked my bike okay, um, right. while going to this <laughs> event. Actually, I was just running really late. And I can report that I was paranoid and ran 
to get my bike as soon as the garage <laughs> had opened and the Daleks didn't come out. And I can report that the nasty big crane machine was there dangling over another wild parked bike, ready to take it away. So I got mine just in time. Anyway, uh, uh, but good. I think you probably will need to park your bike in a proper spot. Otherwise, the um, friendly enforcers will take it away. Yes. And the Gemeente Amsterdam has uh, put up a time lapse of the construction of this bike yeah. garage. Um, and uh, we will put a link to that YouTube video in the liner notes because it's uh, pretty yeah. impressive to see how they have actually built it. And then if you uh, look closely at the time lapse, you will see that it is indeed an underwater parking garage <laughs> and not underground because there's not a single uh, layer of soil um, uh, involved in this project. Right. Okay. The only problem with that is that underwater generally means submerged. So when you talk about when you tell someone it's an underwater bike facility, they think you need a sort of an oxygen tank and a scuba mask to park your bike. Well, they did submerge it. They built three of the parts on land in the Vestelkava, and then they took it to location and, and sunk it, which is remarkable. Very they clever. just pumped out the water, so you don't need your oxygen tank. Uh, uh, indeed, they seem to have pumped out and refilled the canal basin two or three times during the construction, didn't they? When you look at the time lapse. Yeah, and there's a second bike park on the yeah. other side, which they had to sink, and it's it's just inches above the north-south line. They they really had to uh, make sure they didn't damage the line that took so much time, cost so much money. But <laughs> yeah, so seems fl- like they flood did the, it. Flood the metro, yeah. And it's only a matter of time until this uh, parking garage starts leaking. So uh, you be- you better prepare your oxygen yeah. tank indeed. Otherwise, you will never <laughs> uh, you can never retrieve your your bike yeah. again. It is nice though because uh, on top of this garage they have uh, put these um, the boats, the touring boats uh, can can moor. Uh, so it's really nicely done, and it's also uh, you can finally see now that. Uh, Amsterdam Central Station was actually built on an artificial island, especially made mm. for for that station. And before they all started with the north-south line and with all these other construction works, it just looked like a huge square, yeah. right? You you were not aware that it was actually built on an artificial island. And now this they they all uh, restored that, so that it's it's all very nicely done. But this isn't the end of the construction work at Amsterdam Central Station, right? Because they're building another. They're also talking about the next bike park that they might need by 2029. Uh, yeah. So uh, as long as I remember, Amsterdam Central Station has been a construction site, but it's uh, traditional. Uh, the end is, All the uh, best cities. Yeah. yeah. Welcome it's visitors. The, the end is still not in sight. <laughs> That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes, and you can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. A high one. Preferably. Yeah, um, preferably. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. I would like to stress there's no cash for votes here. Absolutely no, no. not. But you will get, uh, you will you will earn yourself a shout out on the next podcast. A mispronounced one if you're really Probably. lucky. <laughs> yeah. My thanks to Paul Peters and uh, Shanae Bostas. I'm Gordon Derrick. Exactly. See what I'm saying? Mispronounced. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Gordon Derrick and we'll be back next week. 